This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What does it mean to be a DIY artist? In the case of our guests today, it means that sometimes you really do do it all yourself. You're the artist, the engineer and producer, the record label, the booking agent, the publicist, etc. When does that work for people and when's it good to get others involved? Can you be successfully DIY for your whole career? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Since 2002, Merch Table has operated and managed online stores for hundreds of successful musicians, record labels, comedians, artists, and small businesses. Big or small, set up shop today by visiting merchtable.com. Today, we talk to three artists who've been doing it themselves for years about what it takes, when and how to get help, and when you need to just be an artist. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lick the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No, mind your own Support for The Future of What comes from SoundExchange. You are listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Cool Nuts, Chris Kruger, and the band Listener. Everybody, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. All right. Thanks <laughs> yes. for having us. You guys are like Typhoon, right? There's like 14 of you, 15. <laughs> I'm kidding. There's, there's like four, right? So anyway, our uh, topic today is do it yourself because you guys are all kind of fantastic people to talk to about doing it yourself here in this crazy music business world. And so I feel like we should just sort of dive in, but I think Cool Nuts, I'm going to start with you because you put your first album out in 1997. Mm-hmm. Well, actually before that. Oh, yeah? 93. 93 was the first record. Yeah. And you started your label in 92, right? Yeah. Wow. Well, 92 was actually when we did the first one. Okay, so that mm-hmm. was the genesis of the whole yeah. of the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. We were recording, well, to start, me and my buddy Bosco, he's a producer, we basically were always doing music. He was DJing, producing, and they had a group of my peers. They were probably some a year older, some two years older. And at the time, that was a big kind of age gap, so I was like the little brother. <laughs> so then some of them started doing other stuff, and then it left me and Bosco. He was still making beats, and then I was always like rhyming in the background and kind of like waiting my turn. And as I became more serious about it we started recording more music he had like a eight track cassette recorder and then he was you know producing tracks and we started recording stuff then eventually he moved away to LA to go to USC on an engineering scholarship but he was still doing music I was still doing music and I would go out there and we would record and and then we would have these you know tapes and 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 projects and we just decided like are we going to is it going to be a hobby or are we going to do it seriously? So we were like basing off of what we saw the Bay Area doing with the independent Bay Area music scene, E-40s, Two Shorts, and so many others putting out their own music. And then also a lot of the stuff that was happening in Portland with the independent indie rock scene, just the independent music scene as a whole. We just kind of followed that blueprint of like press up your own music, put it in the record stores, and, you know, market it yourselves, posters on the polls, flyers, and then book your own concerts and all that. And it started to gain momentum. And then it 
basically put us in business. Right. <laughs> yeah. You created something out of nothing. Exactly. Yeah. That, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was no blueprint. There was no script to, to follow outside of what we saw other people doing. Like now you can jump online and all the CD baby information and oh, sure. blast. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. some of that information that, that I get in those emails, if I knew some of that stuff back then, right. you know, just the progress you could make with that information and that wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. But it sounds like it was, I mean, back then, and I mean, we've talked about this in the show a ton, community is so important, yeah. right? The people that you know and the people that you're friends with mm-hmm. and just, you know, people who show you the ropes and show you how to how to get going. Yeah. Chris, how was it for you when you started out? It was really similar. I mean, I think it's uh, beginnings in, in this aspect or area of, of any creative endeavor are very much just kind of you create your own momentum you know so if you want to do something you just go out and do it rather than sitting around and waiting like it's still even if your perspective and your mentality is that you want to find a record label or you want to find a booking agent or anything like that you still have to be a self-starter you still have to go out and actually make a recording you have to go out and book your own shows you have to show these individuals and these people in these positions that you have something to offer them. So regardless, I mean, I think after that, it's just the decision as to whether or not your interest is more, I don't want to say self-educational, I guess, or, you know, maybe you are more in line with controlling your own destiny and having a, a better grip on these things, right. you know? Well, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure that both of you, now that you've been in this game for quite a while, you have younger people coming to you, you meet younger people, because I, you know, as running a label, I hear this all the time from people. I'll do such and such when such and such happens, right? Like like the band, my favorite band ever, they tell me, we will totally go on tour as soon as Fugazi takes us out as their opener. <laughs> and I was like, wow, because no one in the country ever had that idea before. You guys are the <laughs> first ones. Like, yeah. what? You know, and but that is actually like more common, I feel, than you'd think. I mean, I feel like the three of us sitting here are like, you want to do do it. You do it. But like a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not going to do it quite yet. Mm-hmm. I got this other thing that has to happen first. So what do you what advice do you give to those young people? I mean, I think that, yeah, they're like nowadays there's a misconception because the younger artists, they have so much access to the information, to seeing what artists around them are doing to, to like from, you know, when we started doing it, I couldn't go on YouTube and watch jay-z's show and surf the net and see amigos doing all these festivals and and actually have you know like all of that stuff like when i started rapping going to europe was like not even a thought that wasn't even something like oh i'm gonna go to europe like you know like how you said like i'm going on tour with fugazi Mm -hmm. but it's like so many artists now have the ability to like even as it applies to opening for a major artist like when people started seeing us do, doing certain stuff, it showed them, like, I can call the Roseland and ask, can I open for Ice Cube? You know what I mean? And it made it so much easier for people to have that access. But at the same time, you don't just want to be opening for Ice Cube. You want to be opening with Ice Cube with something to contribute to that show, whether it be ticket sales, whether it be you have a project that you're pushing so that when you hit that stage, the perception that people get is like, okay, for one, he's serious. For two, he's a professional. For three, it's just quality music. Because I've played 
big stages and no one show has just been like that made my career like right. ooh I opened for you know yeah. I've opened for Wu-Tang Clan I've opened for E40 I've opened for all these artists and no one show gave me a career or like I woke up the next day and it was like oh I'm on now right. you know, I, I performed in front of 1500 people it was more so a culmination of a number of things that went into the pot exactly like you, you know having product accessible to the people having merch having the ability to when people are coming in maybe having my guys passing out a flyer like yo go to the website or all of these things that went into the overall machine of building a, a buzz that that created the momentum to be booked again after that show like I, I was on this big stage now I got a call from Burbatis or I got a call from even if whether it was Satyricon or whoever, like now we want you to do your own show. Like, exactly. And that's the, that's what you're working towards is people wanting to have you do your own show versus I have this grand scheme or this grand idea of I'm going to be going on tour with Fugazi. Like that's my first tour. Like, no, your first <laughs> tour might be you and six friends in a van yeah. sleeping on the floor or in one motel six hotel room I mean, like, being on tour for us, like, having three off nights in Billings, Montana, staying at the Motel 6 on the off days and eating at Costco. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I have a Costco membership. They have hot dog and soda pop and, uh, you know, the, the chicken wrap for, yeah. <laughs> for $4. Oh and, you know, playing PlayStation on the off days mm -hmm. and sending emails. Yeah. Exactly. Kristen, I mean, you did, you know, you were a booking agent for years, so you must have had that conversation with a lot of bands over the years of like, yeah, you have to do these tours. You're not, your first tour is not going to be, you know, opening for some major artist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a consistent conversation and thread about that because you always try and get artists that you're representing. You know, for me, from my perspective, I was working with my friends because that's how I started out as an agent. And that was my interest is helping my community and using the, the assets and tools and resources that I've developed to be shared. And so the interest was to always get friends projects out with larger artists, you know, wherever possible. So they were always being submitted to those tours and everything. But the same, you know, as we, we touched on earlier, it's like you have to have something to offer. You know, you have to have, you have to be able to show that you're selling a certain, you know, number of tickets in each market or you, your, you know, sound scan reports and your record sales are there, you know, in a place that's going to make it worthwhile and it's really going to complement the show and add to it. But I mean, most bands other than those rare Cinderella moments are going out and doing that, you know, like going out, you know, on their own tours and playing bars and small clubs and, and all of that. And hopefully more predominantly DIY spaces, because those are, are the spots and spaces where I feel like the community really comes together and where people actually sit, they're real listening rooms, you know, where people are actually connected and enjoying and appreciating versus playing in a bar where, half the people are just there to drink and the other people, you know, the other half who might be there to listen can't hear you over the crowd noise, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy path whatsoever. It's always going to be the school of hard knocks. There's always more to learn and you'll always be surprised at what you missed or what you hadn't learned along the way. And how, I mean, you have such firsthand perspective on this. I feel like I have to pick your brain on it. Like how many of those bands just wash out? Like how many bands go out on the road because I have my own estimate of this for the last 20 years, you know. 
But uh, like, how many fans go on the road, find out it's hard, find out they miss their girlfriend, find out they don't like Costco chicken wraps, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just are like, no, not yeah. doing it. There's, I mean, a lot. And if it doesn't happen on the first tour, I mean, there aren't a lot of bands that last longer than maybe, maybe anywhere from two to five years max, you know, and there's, there's definitely a, a kind of an age limit on that. But yeah, I mean, and aside from learning it's hard or that it's a difficult process, there's also the chemistry between the band members that everyone has to look at as well and like whether or not they can interact and continue to interact with one another in a respectful manner when they're in such close confines and close quarters with each other forever, you know? Like, because you're 24-7, you cannot get away from the people you decide to jump in a van with when you're on tour unless you just totally ditch out and fly home, you know? Like, which has also happened, you know? And tours have been canceled and all of that. I've been on tours like that. was I Called Out Your Name by The Thermals. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. Want an even closer look at issues we talk about on the show? Our monthly newsletter will keep you informed about news, upcoming events, episodes, and more. 
You'll also have access to exclusive offers and behind-the-scenes looks. Sign up at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. You are listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Cool Nuts, Chris Kruger, and the band Listener. Well, we happen to have a band on the phone here, so hey, Listener guys. How do you guys keep it together on the road? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh we just got done with a, a world tour. About It was like three and a half months long worth of shows, and we didn't. No, we did, we did just fine, but... Uh, <laughs> It was it was certainly long. I mean, you know, there's always the goal of like getting good sleep, trying to eat well and take care of each other and yourself and try and stay in good health. And I don't know, that's a good start. We're just I think we're just really lucky that we have the people in the band that we have in the band. And we're all like grown adults in our 30s and are not like ridiculous people to be around. So it's just kind of. You know, respect, courtesy, all the stuff we learned in kindergarten, kind of that, that thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, that all sounds good, but I'll bet <laughs> there are moments <laughs> where you really get on each other's nerves. But yeah, three and a half months is a is that is that's a mega tour. I'm impressed. How how long has the band been together in this particular format? I know that listener has been around since 2003, but with this lineup, how long have you guys been together? Two years of kind of the core three members and we've had this summer and fall we have a, a second guitar player that's come along on tour with us but the last two years in the same lineup yeah and so you guys have done the cd baby thing right you have released your own albums with a pretty good amount of success do you want to talk about the decision to do that sure so using that distributor i guess that distributor specifically or just just doing it yourself yeah just why did you put it put stuff out by yourself uh, well quite simply because no one else wanted to <laughs> um, <laughs> we're like well I mean, we should do it then because no one else is <laughs> so, yeah i mean just like chris was just talking about like you know there's literally no one you know like unless there's those few bands that just happen to it just works and people do things for you you just have to do it for yourself and literally the only people that things just sort of magically happen is like kind of that promoter relationship where you show up in a city and things have happened but to get back to putting out records yeah it's just a matter of like i mean sure we emailed record labels to say hey do you want to put this record out but you know so no response there so it's just kind of like, okay, well, let's just put this out. Let's figure it out. Let's buy vinyl CDs. Let's put it up on, you know, a digital distributor and let's go tour and make a life and make music and try and make a thing out of it. And what, did you have friends who were doing that? I mean, what sort of gave you the the blueprint for what you should be doing? Because I can't tell you how many bands don't get it, that going on tour is like a seriously important component of this. Mm. And it seems like you guys really got that message at some point early on, especially with the tour of homes yeah. <laughs> that, you, that you've been doing or that you have done in the past, which is a really cool idea. I mean, that's just a great way to get out there. Thanks. Sure. I mean, there's, there's always been, you know, you see like bands just touring or, you know, everything from that to just seeing your friends' bands or groups that are, you know, out there in the world trying to make it as well. And you don't know just like, in someone else's business or marriage or any of that. You don't know how all those inner workings really work until you like 
sit down and talk to them or don't, or just make up your own mind and, and just go. But it's kind of like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why touring is or was or continues to be such a thing. I mean, it's it's almost like just a part of band experience, you know, what we do. It's funny because, you know, that's what that's how I think of it, too. But then, you know, I meet artists all the time who are like, oh, yeah, we're going to totally tour as soon as there's a bus and Fugazi and, you know, hotel rooms and a credit card and a whole bunch of, you know, other stuff. And I'm like, wow, I totally didn't somehow miss that part. Like I, I was like, I'll get in a van any at any point. Like I will just get in a van and go places because touring is like one of the funnest things in my mind. And now that I'm old and I have a family, I'm like, ah. You know, can't do that anymore. But, you know, although, Nuts, you still do it. You still tour. Yeah, well, I do it in a number of different capacities, whether it be touring on my own or tour managing, you know. So I get this. I, I guess I've been fortunate to see it from all levels in terms of major label touring, the van touring, the rental car touring, you know, flight touring. So I have a respect for it the ascension because, you know, I was fortunate enough to go from, like I said, doing music, not having a, I guess, a uh, expectation of, like I said, like, okay, now I'm going to go to Europe. Like once I do this, I'm going to Europe. It was like those things just happen. Like, okay, I put out an album here in Portland and then I got a call from Eugene, you know, I put out an album in Portland then I got a call from Boise. Then I got a call from Denver, you know, so going from I'm driving to Seattle to do a show to somebody in Denver wants to fly me out to do a show or we're making music here or we're in L.A. making music and then Bosco calls and like, yo, you want to go to Denmark? And I'm like, well, what's up? He's like, well, I produced for the biggest rapper in Denmark and they like what we're doing. He said we can come over and play on his show, you know, in front of 3000 people. And it was like, get your passport. You know what I mean? So. To me, anything that I'm doing that pushes the envelope of me being, and, and I don't care about being in the front. What I care about is being in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if, right. I'm, if I'm in the car or on the bus in the capacity of my music got me here or my involvement in music got me here, I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to be there watching an artist that I booked for the show or a friend of mine who is like, yo, where I'm going out on tour. Do you want to, you want to run the tour? Yes. Because I just, I'm, I'm happy to be around it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, cause I didn't have any like big, cause at the time, like I said, when we started, there was no like watching Glastonbury. You couldn't, you know, you just heard about it. Right. I heard that Run DMC is doing shows in London, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or, or Ireland or wherever. It, so when I arrived somewhere on foreign soil, it was like my music got me here. Like, this is a blessing because I didn't have that intention when I did it. I did it because I like doing music. And I love, I, even today, I still love doing music, mm-hmm. you know? And I had a, a moment, we went out on this thing called the Holy Ship. And we went, I went with E-40. Well, was supposed to be going with E-40, but there was a storm. So he was supposed to get on the boat in the Bahamas, but he didn't. So we were on the boat with Too Short because they were both supposed to be there. We were there in support. And I'm watching Too Short perform, and it's pretty much an EDM crowd. And I'm thinking about 
Too Short started 30 years ago in Oakland selling tapes. And we're here 30 years later on a cruise ship in front of 20-something-year-old people. And I went to him. I said, man, you should feel blessed. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, man, you started pushing tapes. You're here 30 years later rapping these same songs in front of 20-something-year-old kids. And you're still relevant to the point where they're booking you on a cruise ship mm-hmm. in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of the ocean with lights flashing and <laughs> marshmallow DJing. And, and I'm like, I'm just happy to be here. You know what I mean? So just in all of those levels and capacities, I just take it all as a, today, if I'm doing a show in Medford, I'm like, I'm happy to be in Medford. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I wasn't expecting that when I started. I was expecting just to make rap songs and do it for my community. Exactly. You know, so touring to me, I like you said, I love it. Of course, I got a family now, so it's a little different, but, you know. Definitely. I think gratitude is a big part of it. And, and I think of the whole DIY thing, I feel like you have to have gratitude. You have to have, not have to have, but like I think the people who are still in it and are still working today mm-hmm. are who started working years ago. That's part of it is it's it's like you weren't necessarily expecting what happened but you found some success you your music resonated with people and then you get to keep going it's yeah. like you get this opportunity to keep staying in the game and i think that that is a real driver and it's especially impressive when like the three guests here today it's like you guys have basically done this all yourselves i mean you know you put out your own record you record your own records <laughs>
was Kick Drum by Shy Child. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You are listening to the future of what? We're talking to Cool Nuts, Chris Kruger, and the band Listener. Let's talk for a second about home recording and mm-hmm. because God knows that technology has changed <laughs> so much in the last 20 years. Dan, do you guys do you guys record yourselves at home? Very little, just like for demo reasons, but we'll go and pay for like a studio and and uh, get an engineer that we like and we found that it just kind of sets the the tone for making a record and 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 equipment-wise and knowledge-wise it you know, you're kind of in a space for the certain time and you want to capture the record the best way. And we found that that's the, the best, for, you know, for us to let someone else, we can just be the musicians and let someone else make sure it's all getting down to the computer correctly. Yeah, definitely. And then, I mean, you obviously don't have the expense of having to have a home studio. However, having a home studio can be quite fabulous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chris, what about you? Because you record most of your own music, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, predominantly. And then I'll take it into a studio. Like uh, Haywire has a really nice Neumann vocal mic, so I'll go in there and do vocals on that because you can't not when you have access to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, starting out when I was 13, 14 years old, we were using a boombox that had a built-in microphone and then figuring out where the sweet spot in the room was <laughs> and going back, recording, playing back, and like, oh, that's not it. And then, you know, spiking the the spot where it sounded best, you know, or in the garage or whatever. So going from that to getting my first four track Otari tape machine, which I have still have and use, and then, you know, figuring out how to drop tracks from that down to cassette and then bring it back up and then three more tracks and drop it and just in perpetuity, you know, and then, you know, Pro Tools became popular and I was using uh, Sonic Foundry Vegas before that, which I still really like. It's really bare bones. There's no bells and whistles. It's just plug, record, and play. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely become far more accessible to be able to do it yourself in that respect. Equipment has become more affordable, more available. But it comes down to like whether or not you're comfortable with your ear and whether or not you feel like you can achieve the sounds that you're hearing, that you that you want, you know, or whatever your sound is for that project. So, you know, whether that just comes down to demoing yourself, you know, on your own or going into a recording studio, like... You know, in that respect, you are still producing your own music, mm-hmm. you know, because it's right. you're defining or attempting to define what, what sound it is that you want to hear. So, right. and trying to direct someone else who, whom you've hired, who you think can achieve that for you. Exactly. 
And Nets, you have a studio of your own, which a lot of classic hip hop Portland records were were produced at. Yeah, because what happened was I got used to having access to somebody like Bosco, who was a very skilled musician, engineer, producer. So I would always watch him do stuff. But then as I would come back to Portland, we didn't have the access to all the studio. You know, like we didn't, it was an abundance of studios. And then so I was like, well, I got to get to the point where I can create music when I want to. Well, actually, when he moved on to Pro Tools, he was always on the dig- ahead of the curve on, on the technology. So he had an eight track that was synced to an Atari computer with Dr. T's rhythm software. <laughs> I remember all this because I would watch him put things together. Like as he got new pieces, I would watch all this. And then eventually he got to a point where he, you know, got his first Pro Tools set up. And so he gave me the recorder, the eight track recorder, and then I start messing around with it. But then I was like, this isn't this isn't going to, you know, be up to par because he's on Pro Tools now and I'm just kind of learning. So I was like, well, no, no, no. Yeah, he had he had an ADAT. He had one ADAT and then he also had Pro Tools with the ADAT. So I got an ADAT and then I got a, a Mackie mixer. First, I started with a I think it was a 16 channel mixer, a mic. And then I was like, OK, this is cool. But. It's not going to be enough. So then I got another ADAT. So I had two ADATs. Then I progressed to a Mackie 24-channel mixer. And I just started building more and more stuff around it. So then eventually I had three ADATs, 32-8 mixer, you know, just started trying to get more outboard gear just to get a better sound. And I recorded a bulk of my first album, which was Harsh Game for the People. I recorded a lot of that, produced a lot of it, because then I also got a keyboard, synthesizers, all of that stuff, and started getting into the whole MIDI thing and and all the other stuff. And so what I would do is record here, take the ADATs, take it down there. And so what we did with Harsh Game is we went and rented a manly compressor to run everything through. Bosco tightened up, because I I don't play like, I can play stuff, but I'm not like a trained musician. So I was, I, I try to, like people say, oh, producer, I make beats. (laughs) but in terms of like I produce I know how to hear things and stuff like that so I would take it to him he would play stuff I couldn't play add stuff edit stuff for me tighten it up a little bit for me just to get the 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 stuff that I wanted from it and then we of course recorded more and more projects for through the label so we we were able to record mix go to LA improve the sound make sure that we got the the audio quality we wanted and one of the things for me is I was always like I always listen to a lot of stuff. So like I would always listen to Dr. Dre, like the quality of it, like how the vocals sounded. And I was always trying to like strive to get a better sound Mm -hmm. in my studio, you know, of course, but there's a lot different between my studio and Dr. Dre's (laughs) studio. But now, like if I want to do a verse or like, like certain stuff, I still record like, cause now I can have my studio in a backpack. So I can have a preamp mic interface and then plug in in the hotel room and record stuff like that. So for that type of stuff, I still do that, but I don't have like a big setup anymore. Like a, like, cause now you can, like my setup at home is a, a desk with a preamp interface speakers. And it's super simple now, you know, but it was a lot of work putting in early on to record those albums. And, and then also like being able to offer that, to the to the Portland hip hop community because we did like a, a double CD called the Western Conference All Stars which was like twenty eight songs 
and the bulk of it was recorded in, in our studio because we were just knocking songs out with different artists and, and, and putting it out. But I, like he was saying, I sometimes like, I still, now I go into the studio where I can just be an artist and not be the, the engineer, the producer, the mixing engineer. Try, I don't, I just, I don't want to do all that. I just want to listen and record and write raps and yeah. make music. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to put it because it really brings up, like, if you are going to do home recording, you kind of have to develop this whole other skill set. Yeah. And then what are you? Like, are you an artist or are you a producer or are you an engineer or are you, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. all of this stuff? And and it's great. I mean, it's great to have the skills, but at the same time, you know, like you said, you you want to write music perform it and get on the road, do your job as a musician, you don't have time to be also doing all this other stuff unless you change your job and say, okay, well, I'm also a producer. I'm also a whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and some people do do that, but yeah, I think, I think it, it's also in part how you end up compartmentalizing everything. I look at producing and recording and engineering as part of the creative process. So it's like, that's just, just as integral to your art and the, and the sound and the songs and the music that you're creating as the material itself. So having control over that and determining, you know, it, it's like, uh, it's like if you're a visual artist, you are determining what your color palette is, you know, basically like you can paint the image and that's what we're doing when we, when we create the sound and, and write the songs and everything, but fine tuning it and deciding how it's actually really going to look, you know, it's, it's full picture and full visual representation is also inclusive of the actual sound and the tone and everything else. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point to talk about is, is like, is there a point that comes sometimes where as a do-it-yourself artist or someone who's done it yourself for a long time, you, you just get to this point and you're like, I'd like someone else to do this now for a while. I would like to maybe not do that part anymore. Well, I think it, it also boils down to like times are changing now too in that my first record, like the, there was that passion that was just music before the business. So like being able to like roll out of bed and the studio's right there and just make music. And, and, and again, it was just to make music and then you put it out and it organically does what it does. And there isn't all of the business and promotion and marketing to it. And I think once it gets to the point where you have all that coming into play, now your mind is filled with a whole bunch of other stuff outside of just the music and if you don't have like that was the thing with having a label when you had a label you had the ability to be the artist and the label did all the work nowadays even now it doesn't work like that you're not just the artist you have to have your mind on social media you have to have your mind on kind of like even your marketing the brand and all of that stuff so it just adds a whole different level of i think sometimes clutter to making the music, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, because all of those elements start to come into play of like, okay, I used to could just write music and record it and not just make music and be creative. Now you're like, once the business side starts to come in and you start making money or, or it becomes, it has reached to more and more people, then there has to, now there's strategy going into it. It's not just like I'm organically making music and pushing it. I'm marketing music. I'm promoting music. I now have an image to keep in mind and, and all of these things that kind of get in the way sometimes of the creativity of it all to mm -hmm. where like, okay, now I don't, I don't want to record any, I don't want to have to record it because now that takes away from the time that 
I have to write or I want to write my music. And then now that I'm writing my music, I'm thinking about, oh, this picture that I put on Instagram, does it go in line with <laughs> what I'm trying to push to the public? Right. You know, it's just, yeah, sometimes you just want to just make music and not be worried about all the other stuff. Right. Absolutely. And something that's definitely happened lately is bands have sort of, I mean, definitely in the last few years since the revolution of the internet, is that artists can hire publicists themselves. And Dan, you guys, the whole reason I know you is because of your publicist, Sierra Hager. And so that's, I mean, that's like really helpful to be able to hire someone to do your publicity and not have to worry about that, right? Yeah, it, it is nice. You know, someone that kind of uh, knows more, just like, an engineer in a studio or a designer or just any of it, you know, just someone that that's what they do. And, you know, you don't have to just, you know, be, be a musician tour, like make sure you're, you know, if you're booking or make, make sure your booking agent is, you know, has all that stuff sorted out, you know, just all the, the plates that you can spin and the hats you can throw on, you know, after a while, if, if you can, you know, in your business model or if you can hand that off or hire the people who are professionals at what they do, I mean, the idea or the theory, I mean, is that you'll have a better product and a better thing to show in, in the world and, and honestly, like, allow yourself as an artist like, to just be, you know, what you are and, and kind of focus on that so you're not, you know, having to do a million things. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's an important point because it can really get wearing yeah as an artist to to keep doing that
That was Dear God, I Hate Myself by Shushu. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to Cool Nuts, Chris Kruger, and the band Listener. Let's talk a little bit about this whole digital revolution because everyone has lived through it. Everyone here has lived through it pretty much. And and by digital revolution, I mean the moment in time when we went from an economy where we could make music and sell it <laughs> to an economy where music is now not, you can't sell albums the way you could. Music is is something that is is handled in a different way. And so it's it's changed the way the economy works. And you can still make money from album sales at concerts, you know, at, at your shows. You definitely, that's a place. And I mean, it does still happen. Obviously, people are mysteriously still buying CDs and there's a lot of vinyl sales, which is great. But music is kind of this online thing, this thing that people stream and they listen to it and consume it in a different way. So how has this affected you guys, your guys' businesses and your outlook at this point? Well, I mean, they're probably at least seven different directions <laughs> in that respect and seven different opinions, you know, can look at it from, you know, the perspective of being a consumer or can look at it from the perspective of being an artist, a musician and attempting to actually make a living off of this. I have points where I would very much like to enact a very Steve Albini, no free lunch policy on things and pull my entire catalog from digital and Spotify and all of that. And be like the only way you can access this music is through actual real life, tangible mediums. Now only press vinyl and CDs and you have to purchase these. And if it's online anywhere, it's online illegally because I do not approve of it, you know, and then having that control over it in that respect, even if it means that I have a thousand records piled up in my house like in perpetuity for the rest of my life you know because no one can discover it and no one can find it other than through touring and shows but I think like as a consumer personally I love Spotify I love being able to go on and listen to any record that strikes my fancy at any point in time and just be able to spin entire catalogs and have it accessible and no matter where I am I don't have to take my entire record collection with me you know I can listen to any record on a plane wherever doesn't matter. But again, it's absolutely devalued in a monetary sense, the, the financial value of music, of people actually purchasing records, you know? It's very obvious. It's not difficult to find that connection. So, like, it's taken away one of our major income streams. And one of the beautiful things about, uh, about being an artist and musician is that we could make money off of our art and off of this product without having to be everywhere at every different point. So it's like now we're at a point where basically it's Stephen Merritt actually was a radio show, oh, XM Underground, and he was the guest host. And he was talking about touring and how much he he hates touring and he was his statement was basically like touring is just for t-shirt sales it's just for selling t-shirts that's it you know and i have to agree with him because it's basically what it's come down to is like your secondary income outside of ticket sales is just selling your band's advertising on on cotton to people you know like that's it you know, but I mean, people are still coming out and enjoying the, the performance and, and the shows and everything and listening to the recorded art, but there's just no, 
there's no perceived public value for it. And I worry about that because it's a process of devaluing art itself. If people don't deem it worthy of their dollar, you know, which is one of the ways that we show respect and appreciation for things, especially in a capitalistic society, like then at what point do they just start devaluing art altogether? And we've seen that struggle with visual art, with galleries closing and all of that, not making enough money, people not attending as much, you know, and across all artistic and creative mediums. So if it's happening directly with music and bands as well as visual art, which is something that people typically seek out more than more obscure creative mediums, like then those obscure creative mediums are going to start disappearing much faster as well. And we need all of it. We need every different aspect, every medium. We need it all happening simultaneously and people need to experience it. So I think to recap, I think it's amazing as a consumer. I get it. As an artist, it sucks. And I think the only way to change that is a change in a cultural perception of what art is and that it requires maintenance. You want to jump in here? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with them because, you know, you saw, you definitely saw a dramatic change because a big part of our success was the ability to, knowing that I could, for one, I could fund my studio, I could record a project, I could invest anywhere from ten to $15,000 into it and knew that we were going to make that, you could guarantee that you would make that money back, you know what I mean, and profit mm -hmm. to fuel the next project, to improve the studio, to improve the next release, the, the, the promotion around it and even the reach. And you just watch, like, you know, at one point when, when we had the label, like, when I saw that, like, okay, we're a label, we're selling records, you know, we had probably 50 stores that, that we were consigning records to ourselves, like that I would be actively shipping product to, filling out consignment forms for Sam Goody, Tower Records, Music Land, and, and then have checks coming from all of that. And then as you start watching, like, Sam Goody's are going out of business, Music Land's going out of business, House of Sounds, Music Galore, all of these stores are going out of business. Music Millennium on 23rd closes down. You just start seeing the diminishing outlets of places to push independent music, which also were hubs. So, like, say you go to places like Yakima that would have two or three record stores. You know, you, you touch down in Yakima, all you had to do was put your posters up in those stores, consign some CDs. You get a call, like, you know, a week or two later, hey, we sold out all the CDs, we need some more. You know what I mean? And then now you, you touch down in those markets, those outlets aren't there. Mm -hmm. Going to, you know, Montana and, and, and there's Hastings Records and different places like that where you could literally go in and talk to the manager and say, hey, I want to put my records in these stores. We're selling records in Spokane down the way. Can you put these records in here and put our posters up? And you see the success of that. And now, you know, that has to a degree faded away. You know, I remember going on tour with Tech Nine, and they giving us the opportunity to go on tour and support our album, and we went out not being paid, you know, n no guarantee, with a van, two hotels every night, gas, food, pay for all of that, and come back home with money just from merch. You wow. know what I mean? Yeah. And that's CDs and T-shirts. And nowadays, I don't know if you can guarantee that of being a support act 
mm-hmm. on a on a tour of five artists and you might be the third artist on the show and knowing that you know we're making anywhere from 300 to a thousand dollars a night in merch as a support act right you know nowadays you go out <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're lucky you make if you make 200 dollars. Yeah. you know it, it's it's just definitely you have to if you don't figure that out and figure out like how you're going to navigate those waters it, it can be catastrophic to staying in business you know or continuing to put out music absolutely Dan, how's it been for you guys, this shift? Because you've also lived through it. Well, I mean, that's just it. Trying to just figure it out, keep going. You know, I mean, on one hand, I mean, you know, since people have stopped buying music, I mean, maybe they, at least, you know, they'll have money to pay their bills and stuff. So that's good. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, there's always a way to have, you know, uh, like, oh, man, you know, kind of a bummer attitude. I mean, Chris hit on like it's awesome that Spotify is a thing that you just have literally everything you know there that's cool yeah pretty pretty rad but I, I don't I don't know I don't I don't have all the answers as far as like like what to do now other than finding joy and performing and, and making records and trying to come up with not a way to like do people into buying records I and mean, even though it always sort of feels like that like oh look at this but just to be consistent and be, you know, just continue trying. And of course, you know, if you're not making a thing that people just aren't coming to shows, they aren't buying your records, I mean, you know, that's a, a clear sign too that, you know, like, somebody's watching so what other artists, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, for instance, like, we're, we're putting out a record currently and I kind of have the thought of like, look, like looking at like movie theater release industry, you know, they'll put out a preview, like a two minute thing. And then like, you have to go to a movie theater. It's almost like, you know, like going to watch a band or something, but you know, they're, they're not all movies aren't always, I mean, unless it's illegal readily available. There's like a certain time you can get, a, you know, go and see a movie and you want to see it in a certain way. And, and we, we're well, putting out a record where we're, we're putting it out only in vinyl for like a preview time of, of about six months ahead of our uh, putting out our record. And we're putting out four, seven inches and we're, you know, we're not putting it up to download or to, you know, we made bit some videos, you know, just for people who aren't going to buy vinyl. So we kind of tried to make some digital things out there where people can, you know, look at it on their computers and phones and stuff. But yeah, we just wanted to have a time where it's analog only and not just, you know, because you can spend so much time making a record, putting time and money and thoughts and, and your life and, you know, have, you know all, all the things that you have going for you in a record, a year, two years, whatever, and then just, you know, instantly, magically have it up on the internet for everyone to have in, in a matter of hours or something. So, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but maybe... We're trying anyway. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of this, it's a distressing question because largely I'd like this to not be the artist's problem, right? Like we'd like to find some solutions to this that don't involve all of us brainstorming, like how can we make this make money again? It's not fair. A statistic that I heard the other day, which just blew my mind, is the radio industry, which does not pay a performance royalty, as we all know, for terrestrial radio play, if you take away, if you strip out sports radio and talk radio and, and religious radio, 
the music that's played on terrestrial radio is an eleven billion dollar a year industry, right? The music business makes eight billion dollars a year, which means that the radio industry is making more money on music than the music industry is making on music <laughs> per year. So one of the things that's happening right now is, you know, there's this bill in Congress. It's been before Congress forever, but it's finally getting some momentum and movement, which would be a performance royalty for terrestrial radio play, which would bring it in line with satellite radio play because satellite radio does get played. And thank God we've had that in our favor because indie artists are disproportionately favored on satellite and radio and Pandora and, and stuff like that. So there is some movement in other places, which I think is good. And I think the best we can do is educate ourselves and try to educate our fans about that sort of stuff. But part of me feels like this is just not, this shouldn't, it's like, yes, there was a horrible cultural shift, but it doesn't mean we all have to be like, become like road scholars about how to fix this problem. Like, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll partially get helped by the natural courses of, you know, government and the things that government is supposed to do for us if government ever does anything for us ever again, which it may not. Um, but, you know, and then education, just educating yourself and educating your other other people and, and sticking with it. I mean, all three of you guys are really great examples of why do it? What are you waiting for? Nothing. Do it. Don't wait. Just go for it. And then sticking with it. And I think those are, are really admirable and, and impressive. So... I think we've reached the end of our time. You guys, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What. Thank you. Thank you. That takes a million. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard The Thermals, Shy Child, Shoo Shoo, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.